Imagine living in a political landscape where a political party was unifying to erase your national identity and history while making up a new narrative out of whole cloth. Imagine they were ignoring or refusing to prosecute the laws that provided for the safety and civil order of your country. Imagine that they denied the applicability of those laws to establish and direct the moral stature of the nation. This is what the Christian was being accused of by the Jews in Paul's day. Today we'll see if the accusation has any basis in truth. Welcome everyone to the Bread of Life, a radio ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship Church in Boise, Idaho. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Executive Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship. To learn more about our ministries, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Today we're in Romans 3.31, where Paul is addressing an accusation that is teaching that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, had in effect nullified the law that God had given to Israel. And Paul is going to say, certainly not. However, sometimes the way that Christians act, and according to some Christian teaching, the accusation could seem to be justified. So, in Romans 3.31, he simply says, Do we make void the law through faith? It's as if the question is being asked of him. And he says, Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, as you have your Bibles open and you're looking at this, you'll see that it's a very simple verse, and it's actually not extrapolated. It's not explained. It's not given a fuller understanding of exactly what he means. We don't know exactly what he means by the law. We don't know exactly what he means by establishing the law. We don't know if what he's saying is he's referring to the law as a testimony in the community, or he's referring to the law as a convicting work, or he's referring to the law as a commanding directive. The suggestion is that if you buy into Paul's arguments, though, that a person is saved by faith alone, you will abandon your community heritage, you will subvert the constraint of the conscience, you will untether yourselves from all moral restraint, and you'll be lawless, and you'll introduce people into chaos. The question is, is that true? Is that what the teaching and instruction of Christianity will bring to individuals? And as we've said, Paul says that's all nonsense. The Christian teaching of salvation by faith alone does not nullify the law, it does not destroy its purpose. Instead, its faith and this faith, the Christian faith that he's teaching and instructing and has been teaching and instructing, upholds that law. It lifts it up. It establishes it. It fixes it in place. To understand this passage, one of our commentators, a gentleman by the name of Douglas Moo, has pointed out that the law here can be understood in three different ways. I basically already referred to it. It can refer to the law as a testifying force, or it can refer to the law as a convicting force, as the thing that stirs up our consciences, or it can refer to law as a commanding force that gives us all of the laws and the commands. It could be just referring to the Ten Commandments and the various moral laws that are set forth in the law. And Moo says, basically, to understand what Paul is writing here, we have to decide which perspective on the law he's referring to. In fact, if you read all the different commentators, they will give you all kinds of different options on what might be being referred to here and what we could understand Paul saying here. And we're basically told that they're all fairly good options, but then we're being asked by them to pick one. And each commentator picks one. Well, I'm going to give you the options, and we're going to look at them and see how we're to understand this text. 
So let's first look at the law as testifying, right? The law is testifying. Now this doesn't mean the moral commands. This is not simply referring to the Old Testament laws that are given in the Ten Commandments. This is, in a sense, referring to the whole of the Old Testament, which testifies to God's person and God's will and God's way of salvation. Now, very often when the Jew was referring to the law or used and made a reference to the law, he was not speaking to just the Ten Commandments or the moral laws, but he was actually using that word to refer to all of the Old Testament scriptures and the whole of God's story and the way that God was communicating himself to the nation of Israel. And in that story or in that narrative, God was putting forward the information they needed to know to, among other things, see their own sinfulness, constant sinfulness, regular sinfulness, their ongoing rebellion against him. And then to see how God, in the midst of that rebellion and that sinfulness, didn't just simply bring consequences upon their sin, but how God was giving them an option to come away from their sinfulness and be made right. And the way in which they could have a right standing before God and meet with God and commune with God. And so God, in the midst of their sinfulness, God continued to extend out to them covenants or promises that he would fulfill in order that they might find a way of salvation in him. And so basically this is one of the ways in which the law was understood. And so the accusation... They're saying, you're nullifying the story. You're nullifying the testimony of all Scripture. The accusation would be that what you're teaching, that you're saved by faith, takes us away from understanding the will and the way of God, and it sets aside from us the way and the narrative and the trajectory that God has been teaching us and the things that God has been informing us all throughout the sacred story. Paul, you're actually denying these truths. It's as if you're saying, Paul, that... All those things that God said in the past were maybe well and good, but now they're all being set aside and there's no real meaning or no real value to be plucked out of the Old Testament and out of the Scriptures. And now God is starting new and afresh and He's started a whole new story that's going in a whole new different direction. And this new story is setting aside everything that we've learned and the whole story we've been telling. The truth is that that accusation has some validity to it. It's not entirely an unfair accusation because... There are many Christians, even today, who seem to manifest this very idea. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't think the Old Testament is relative to any truth or anything that they embrace. They have an understanding that the salvation they have received is something entirely different than the salvation of the way that God was opening up in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is passed on, and it's just a book that is a relic of the past. And now we have a new era in which God is speaking to us in this wonderful, powerful, loving way through the New Testament. And that's our reference point, and we have no reference point on those things. That's all passé. We're starting a whole new generation. We're a whole new people, a whole new story, and it has nothing to do with that past. And I've actually met Christians who have said that and professed that. They'll say that Paul was preaching an entirely different gospel. Paul was even preaching a different gospel than the gospel that Jesus preached. Because when Jesus came, he came to preach to the Jews. And he offered one kind of gospel was through moral conduct and behavior. And Paul came along and he had a totally different gospel. It was just a gospel of faith. It was a gospel of salvation by grace through faith. And a God who loved them and come to redeem them. And I've met other individuals who wouldn't say that. But actually when you talk to them and discuss them, you'll discover that they never crack open the Old Testament. It's not even considered to be interesting or have any kind of vested interest in their lives. So it's not necessarily an unfair accusation, and it's kind of proved itself out a little bit. Here's the next thing. If we think that the law is a convicting work, we're now considering the purpose of the law 
as something that places a moral constraint upon our consciences. The law here can mean not only the overall story, which does, you know, your family stories place some kind of constraint upon your life, but that also can now include those commands, those direct commands that have been given to us in the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And these together function in a way to constrain the worse in us by awakening our conscience to what is good and right. They allow us as a result because our consciences are constrained and we don't become these independent, selfish people just doing what we want to do in our own way. They create a way in which we can have harmony with one another. And nothing is more dangerous than a person who has no conscience constraining him in society. That's a terrible situation. You want them to feel some conscience and you want them to feel a little bit of shame if they get too far out of line with the way that society is conducting themselves or else you have chaos. And as such, if you nullify these things and you set these things aside and you put aside these, these moral restraints and everyone does what is right in their own eyes, there will be an attitude that we can do whatever we want and we never have to say we're sorry. We never have to apologize. We never have to correct ourselves. We never have to get ourselves. We never have to figure out what the cadence is of people around us. We walk by our own stride, and as we walk by our stride, we stride out and we step on all kinds of other people. We just start treading down other people, doing what we think is good and what we think is right. Well, that's the accusation that's being made here. Paul, you're stripping away the very work of the law to stir up the conscience of men, to constrain them from their worst behavior, and as a result, you're going to create chaos and there's not going to be an ability for us to move together and live together and have harmony together, and it's the opposite of peace that you're encouraging. That's what's taking place here. You know, again, it's somewhat of a fair accusation at times because there are those in the church that actually teach that because Christ has died for our sins, past and present and future, we never again have to confess any sin, and we never again have to ask for any forgiveness. We can dismiss the pricking of our conscience as pointing out personal guilt and accountability that no longer applies to us because Jesus has died for it all. And as a result, that person can conduct themselves in certain ways, act in certain ways, in which you don't have to be constrained by the kinds of guilt that other people are wanting to put upon you and the shame that other people are putting upon you. I've had individuals make this argument to me in the past year and put this before me, that there is this grace that has freely been given to us, and as a result, it's not right for any of us to have any expectations, even from God's Word, on how we ought to conduct ourselves. I had another individual tell me that, listen, because it's freely given to me, I could spit upon Jesus when He was on the cross, and He would forgive me before I drew the back of my hand to wipe the spittle off of my lips. That's the argument. Because it's all free, and it's all grace, and it's all about me. The conscience is untethered from a relationship with God. and The way you engage in a relationship with God, try living with your wife for any amount of time in a healthy relationship where you never say sorry, <laughs> where you never ask for forgiveness. It would not be a very good relationship, and it wouldn't last very long. You start living in separate corners of the house. You start living in that way. But that's the accusation that's being made here. Then again, if we look at this law another way, if we don't look at it simply as testimony, and we don't simply look at it as this law that works conviction, like a moral law that sharpens our consciences and so restrains us to bring us in harmony with one another and with God, then Paul's meaning here is the law as a commanding force. What Paul is referring to is the moral commands of the law and the moral work of the law 
that's done in calling us to keep it and obey it. He's referring to the Ten Commandments here. And he's saying that the accusation here is that we are somehow nullifying the importance of the Ten Commandments by saying that we're above the law. The law of righteous command no longer applies to us. God has changed and God's standard has changed and that the command still doesn't come to us where God says, be holy as I am holy. Or God says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you're to love the neighbor as yourself. What they're saying here is that the Christian in Paul's teaching is encouraging antinomianism. He is encouraging lawlessness. That somehow you're above the law because you're above any of the impact of the law and you're not bound by the moral demands of the law. You rise above it and you're without the law. And again, this can be considered a fair accusation. Actually, in, in Paul's day, the Gnostics were rising up and were giving this very same teaching. They were saying that the salvation that God provided was a salvation for our spirits, which were to last forever, but that was not a salvation for our bodies because our spirits and our bodies were two separate things. And once you received the salvation that God brought to your spirits, you were free to do with your body whatever you wanted. You could live in any way you wanted because you were free from the constraints of the law. And, well, to some extent, there are individuals that teach that still today. The Bible even warns us that we're not to use the liberty that we've been given as a cloak of unrighteousness, as an excuse that we wear to carry out unrighteous lives. But the reason that command is there is because we do it. Well, it's been an honor to have you listening and joining me around the bread of life. May you never lose your regard for Christ and the primary importance of your individual delight in his fellowship. And may you share that delight with others. If you want to learn more about the ministries behind the Bread of Life radio program, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.